And if you will, open up your Bible to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. And we don't have the time, and it's not my plan to do an exposition of this chapter or even the verses that we're going to read. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. But I do want to read through this, and I'll give some comment as we go just to sort of establish a framework for what I'm going to be talking about. And by the time I begin speaking, you'll know what attribute of God we're, we're going to discuss. And perhaps you probably already know, if you know very much about Proverbs chapter 8, you already know where we're going. But in this chapter, wisdom is personified. Wisdom speaks from the first person and, and teaches us about itself. Now, in the first part of the psalm, the personal pronoun is feminine, which we would expect when, when an attribute speaks from the first person. But then later on, and primarily beginning in verse 12, the, the feminine pronouns fall away, and wisdom just declares all of its goodness. And so we read, beginning in verse 12, wisdom, or I, wisdom... Dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. So wisdom here says that it accompanies the manifold mental necessities of living a godly life. Everything that you're going to need for life with regard to the mental aspects of, of walking in this life, wisdom is right there along with them. Prudence, knowledge, discretion. Wisdom still speaking. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the, in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And so we see wisdom hates evil. Wisdom loves good, fears the Lord. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just by me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. In other words, wisdom gives the mighty the powers of their royalty and their ability to reign. It is wisdom that does that. Verse 17, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Wisdom desires to be sought after and should be sought after. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasuries. Wisdom tends toward blessings from God. Verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. And here's where I really want you to begin thinking about this wisdom as wisdom speaks. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, 
I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, he's walking through all of the works of creation, wisdom says, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Obtaining wisdom brings life. Spurning wisdom brings death. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in spite of us and in spite of me especially, that you would have mercy on us, that you would give us the grace of understanding and, and insight. Give us wisdom. Teach us from your word. I pray, Lord, that we would leave here with a better understanding of, of who you are. Lord, I can't teach these things. Only your Spirit can teach these things. So help me to verbalize that which the Spirit has already inspired from your Word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray that Christ, wisdom incarnate, would be exalted. Amen. Well, it's obvious, I believe, the confessional language that we're looking at tonight if you've got a copy there, and if you're like me, I've been checking off these attributes as we're walking, for, walking through them. Last week, we saw that God is most holy, and today we will see that God is most wise. Most wise. We, as a confessing church, confess that God is most wise. If you're reading on this subject reading on theology proper and you're opening up books and you want to know what category this attribute would come under, this is the wisdom of God. Not very creative. And creative language is not needed here. We're talking about the wisdom of God. But the confession says that God is most wise. And we're going to see this for several weeks. Last week, God is most holy. Tonight, He's most Wise. Next week, I'm assuming we'll look and see that he is most free and most absolute. That word most, you'll remember, means to the superlative degree. So as it pertains, the trait of wisdom, which I'll define, God is in himself the superlative manifestation of wisdom. There can be no more wisdom than God is or has. He is the apex and the pinnacle of wisdom. Now we confess that God is most 
wise. What, what do we mean by wise or wisdom? Wisdom is more than just intelligence. It's more than just knowledge. If we wanted to put it very simply, wisdom is the application of knowledge, the use of it. And so for God, it would be the perfect apl application of wisdom. Now, when we think of our uh, human, uh, human ways, we typically divide the, our, our intelligence up into book smarts and street smarts. Intelligence and wisdom. Street smarts is our human way of referring to wisdom. It's knowing how to live out and practically apply knowledge in life. It must be applied to illustrate. You've probably all heard of or seen videos of monkeys who will use the sticks to catch ants. They put the stick down and the ants crawl up the stick and then they pick the stick up and they've got an ant sickle and they... Lick the ants off of it, right? Okay, monkeys are intelligent animals, but they're not smart like humans. They don't know a plethora of facts about the world like we do. But there are human beings who would never figure out that trick. They might know ants crawl up sticks. They might know I can hold a stick in my hand. But there are human beings who could never put those two together and say, put the stick in the ants. You see, those monkeys have put together some things they've watched. Ants, crawl up a stick. I want to eat the ants. I'll put the stick in the ants. That is practically applying just a couple of facts. That's, that's a, a, a very base illustration, but that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You can know facts, but until you know how to apply them in reality, it's not wisdom. I'm going to quote J.I. Packer here. He says, To be truly wise, in the Bible sense, our intelligence and cleverness must be harnessed to a right end. Do you follow me there? We've got to get to an end. Wisdom includes intelligence, but intelligence doesn't always include wisdom and the wisdom to apply it. So when we're talking about the wisdom of God, we're talking about the perfect application of wisdom. We're not talking about monkeys. We're not talking about men. God is most wise. God has all wisdom because He is Himself the measure of wisdom. Now, if you think about wisdom being the practical application of knowledge or intelligence facts that are leading to a right end, if you wanted to break all of that up, there are a lot of different parts to that concept. So what I want to do is is break down a few truths that are assumed in what I've just said. And I'm just going to talk a lot. I've just written. And I'm just going to try to paint a picture in your head. What I'm really trying to do is expand your mind with pictures bigger than we perhaps have ever meditated on so that you can see what it actually means that God is most wise. First, God has perfect knowledge of all facts. So that's step number one. God has perfect knowledge of all facts, all mathematical facts. God knows the answer to every math problem that you could conceive or think of. Every, every fraction or decimal multiplication or division that you can think of, God already knows the outcome of those mathematical equations. God knows every fact about every historical person. 
Every historical place, every historical thing that has ever existed, God knows every fact about all of those things. God knows every fact about every national truth, every national occurrence as well as local, everything that has to deal with nations and and governments as well as small towns and, and homes. He knows every fact that could be known about these things. God knows perfectly every personal or individual fact about every person who has ever lived from the beginning of time until the end of time. He knows every weight and every measure that there is to know. He knows how long a pew is. He knows how long a a fiber of wood is. He knows how much people weigh, how long their hairs are, how long their fingernails are of every person who's ever lived on the planet. He knows every fact about all times and distances. How long it takes to walk to the bathroom and back. How long it takes to drive to church and back, to work and back. He knows every inch, every microscopic measurement of every inch in the universe. He knows every fact. He knows the distance from the farthest corner of the universe to the other farthest corner of the universe. He's measured it out with a span and he knows it. He knows every fact about every thought that has ever passed through the human mind or the animal mind or the, the, any mind. Every deed that you've ever committed or acted upon and that for every person, every animal, every being that has ever existed in the universe. He knows every movement. He knows all words of all languages. He knows the the very first time that word was used from a human mouth and he's traced every use of that word all throughout human history from every mouth and that goes for every word and every language that will ever be conceived in the minds of men. He knows them all as well as conversations. He knows where they all started and where they all ended where they're going, what the point of them is, what the motivation behind the conversation is, whether what a person is saying is really truthful or if there's a hint of deception in it, and that for every conversation that's ever been had on planet Earth. God knows every fact about every animal, every bird, every fish. He knows the number of fibers fibers on every feather. He knows the number of hairs on every furry body, the number of eggs that have ever been hatched. He knows the number of scales on every fish that has ever swam in the oceans. He knows the number of eggs that have ever been birthed out of a fish. And you know, fish have a lot of eggs. He knows them all. He knows the number. He doesn't have to stop and say, hold on, I got that one, I got that. He knows it. He knows every fact. And that for everything living and everything dead... He can point to and name every bacteria, every atom, every proton, every neutron, where they are, what they're doing, if they're strong or healthy, whether they're going to pass on to another host or die where they are. He knows all of the weather, every fact about the weather, the temperature, the clouds, every drop of rain. If you wanted to circle out any square foot of any place on the earth today and ask God how much rain fell here, He could tell you down to the the molecule of water, exactly how much rain has fallen and every spot to which it's fallen. He knows every fact about every tree, every root, every leaf that has ever fallen, its size, its shape, every blade of grass that has ever grown. 
how short it was cut off last summer, how short it'll be cut off next summer, how fast it grows, whether it's really healthy or whether it could use more nutrients. God has a perfect knowledge of every fact. He knows all things. And He knows all things perfectly. There's no fuzziness in His thinking. There's no lack of clarity. Again, He doesn't have to stop and, and wait a second for a, 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 a truth to come to His mind. God is uneducated, unlearned, untaught, and untrained. And yet He knows every fact that, that is. He has a perfect knowledge of every fact, all things. Secondly, God has perfect knowledge of every concurring event and their repercussions. So all of those things I just listed... I could have kept going, but all of those things that I just listed, they all fit into a constant sequence of moments in which events take place. I hope that makes sense. And all of these things did not, they, they don't wait in line for their turn to participate in their specific event. But rather, all over the world and all throughout the universe, every particle of information and every created thing are all in constant concurring movement. Everything, all at once in the universe. To concur means to happen or occur at the same time. So let me illustrate that. Again, I want to I use your imagination here. While the grass is growing in the Ukraine, a shark eats a sea lion off the coast of Mexico. While you bag up your trash, the trash of men and women from centuries ago is decaying in the dirt and is food for earthworms. In New York City, a businessman might make the deal of a lifetime while at the very same time in Haiti, a beef cow uses its tail to swat away a mosquito carrying malaria. And while we sit in worship right now, our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world are sleeping, already having had their souls nourished on this Sabbath. You see how all of these kinds of events, and there are billions and billions of other such scenarios, they're all happening one right after another. All the time, all around the world, something is happening. My kids love it when I tell them, you know, we're, we're waking up in the morning, but on the other side of the world, they're going to sleep. That, that just blows their mind. They're going to bed. It's nighttime. And every event has a repercussion that leads to another event. It's all in a path of, of or a string of events. Every happening runs right into the pathway of another series of events, while around the world another event that seems like it's completely distinct is producing results that will run headlong into a thousand other streams of moments. You get what I'm saying? They're all just, everything is happening. And it's all connected somewhere. Every fact of which God has perfect knowledge plays a role in specific events or specific streams of activity. So will that beef cow's tail have enough power to repel that mosquito away? God knows. God knows how many hairs 
are in that tail, how much power is stored in the muscles of that cow's tail, how fast the mosquito is traveling, how heavy the mosquito is. He knows if it's tenacious enough to keep fighting against the wind when the cow tries to swat it away. God knows. Will the blood of that sea lion have a strong enough smell to draw away a shark that's a mile away that's just about to attack a surfer? The cost of whose surf wax will cause him to have to stop at an ATM and withdraw cash, the service charge of which will line the pockets of a CEO in a big city somewhere, just enough, giving him just enough confidence that when he opens a gospel tract given to him on the street on the way in, he puts it aside and says, I don't need that. I've got money. God knows all of those string of events. He knows and again, this could go on and on and on. Every single moment, countless occurrences have effects on other occurrences. They, they bump into and they slow down and they speed up and they bring to a halt a million other related things, all of which have their own repercussions. And God has a perfect knowledge of all of them all at once for all of eternity. He just sees it. Third, God has a perfect knowledge of the best end or ends. If we want to divide up, to divide up each and every string of moments into categories around the world and throughout the universe, we would see that every couple of moments or every couple of events leads to an end. Well, that's going to lead to something else, but we could always point out an end. For example, the baby cries. The mother wakes up with the baby. Mom gets to spend a little more cuddle time with the baby. That's an end. Now, we could go on and say, well, that's going to affect how mom feels in the morning, but there's an end right there. Dad drives to work. His car burns just a little bit of oil, dropping the oil just a tad, <clears throat> just a tad, just slightly, and a little bit of friction takes place in the engine that causes just a little bit of damage that's going to pile on to more damage and more damage and more damage. But there's an end there, a little bit of damage. Your grass grows, and so you mow the grass. But while you're mowing the grass, time passes, time that you'll never get back. You'll never know what your children were doing or what they were like during that time when you were doing something else. And that's an end. Or I preach a sermon, and you look away. Your mind wanders for 15 seconds, but in that 15 seconds, you miss the specific gospel truth required in your mind to make the logical connection between your sin and the righteousness of Christ. You miss it. That's an end. Now, all of these individual events are leading to specific points, and God has a perfect knowledge of what exactly would be the best possible outcome of every short or long series of events that will ever take place in the universe. He knows that would be best. That would be best. And he's, he knows it all. Now, we know from Scripture, and we just sang, that the goal of all things is the praise of God's glorious grace. In other words, God knows just how every single moment of time and its connected circumstances will work perfectly to the end, which is the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, not only does God have all the facts, 
But God knows from eternity what would be the best terminus of every individual string of events to conclude all of them, to bring all of them to that one great end, the praise of His glorious grace. He knows it. We're still talking about knowledge here. Fourthly, God also has a perfect knowledge of how to make every concurring event with its repercussions coincide to produce that best end. He knows how. Not only does He know what is best, He knows what is needed with respect to every facet, every moment, every circumstance to make them all run together to bring them to the end of His glory. He knows exactly what needs to be done. Does something need to, be weigh, need to weigh more or less? He knows. Does it need to move faster or slower? He knows. Do I need to restrain the evil in that heart a little bit more or can I let it run free? He knows. Will that handshake last too long? He knows. Does that ice need to melt just a little faster in the cup so that the waitress will come back to the table earlier, or is it fine the way it is? He knows. God has a perfect knowledge of how exactly to work in and through every single contingent fragment of the universe to make it all come to one point, the praise of His glorious grace. That's all knowledge. Here's where we get to wisdom. God has the power to make it all happen. Now you might think, well, that's God's omnipotence. We've already talked about the power of God. But think with me here. To have a perfect knowledge of all of these things and how to work in and through them, just having the knowledge will not accomplish the greatest end. The greatest end, the praise of God's glorious grace, necessitates that God Himself actually be the one to accomplish the work. That's the greatest end. That's how He gets the glory. And so for Him not to personally execute the plan would be contrary to the greatest end. And so God's wisdom, or, or any wisdom that does not act, is not wisdom. And you'll see this as we read the Scriptures. Wisdom and might are always together. There's always wisdom leading to an action. Wisdom that doesn't act is not wisdom. It's mere knowledge. Or, or we could even say faulty knowledge because it knows the best end, but it does not see the prudence in acting upon the truth. And so God's wisdom... Far from being just the apprehension of knowledge, he knows all of these things. But his wisdom must be active. There's no potential in God. It is pure act. God's wisdom is not perfect wisdom if it just remains in the realm of theoretical thought. It's only perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom if it brings to pass all things to the praise of his glorious grace. To quote Packer again, he says, God's wisdom is, and quoting, the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Having all knowledge of all things and executing them to achieve His most holy Will. That is to say, God is most wise. He knows all facts. He knows every concurring event. He knows the best ends. He knows how to make every event work to the best ends. And He has the power to make it happen. 
That's the wisdom of God. You see, it's far more than just what's up here. It's bringing all things to the highest and most perfect end. So where do we see this displayed in Scripture? Well, it's all over. Romans 16, 27 contains this phrase, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now there we have another one of Paul's doxologies of praise. You know how he runs off into praise. He can't stop himself. He starts to stagger headlong down a hill of praise and he just can't stop uttering the, the riches of God. And so here he says, the only wise God. God is the only wise God and he is to be praised and to be worshipped because of his matchless wisdom. When you think about all, all of that stuff I just said, when you think about that, that should stop you and make you worship. What a mighty God. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20, the Word of God says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Again, wisdom along with might belongs to God. Wisdom finds its source in God. And again here, what is Daniel doing but praising and worshiping God? Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. In Job 12, 13, we read, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Again, with God as a part of His divine essence, there is wisdom. Probably the locus classicus on the wisdom of God, Romans eleven thirty three. Paul again erupting in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You see, these are exclamations of wonder and awe and praise. You read Romans. He's just elaborated on the gospel. He's just went through 9, 10, and 11 and explained God's plan of redemption and calling the, the Jews and then casting aside the Jews and calling in the Gentiles so that all Israel would be saved. And he just has to stop and say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who can imagine it? Who can think of it? Who can go that far? The wisdom of God is beyond finding out. His ways are unsearchable. Should a man ever set himself up to begin to catalog every fact and every event and every happening and every string of events and happenings and, and seek to try to determine with his own wisdom the greatest end of all things? In other words, should a man try to do what God does with his own wisdom at the very moment, by the time he determines to set himself to the act, a billion other facts and moments have just happened. But for God, it's all laid out before him according to his will, and he works them all out according to his wisdom. And so obviously, Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Nothing man can think, nothing man can do, nothing man can say or can contrive will ever impede upon the wisdom of God. Ever. 
And we could go on and on. We'll, we'll read some more text here. But I want to go ahead and begin to apply these things. Because wisdom is a communicable attribute. We, we can derive from God some wisdom. God's wisdom immediately implies something in us. It immediately calls us to something. So here's the first thing. First, consider your calling. Consider your calling. If, this is, if, if the God that I've just described is truly the God of Scripture and He is most wise, then think about where you stand in relationship to that God. And then think that even though I stand in, relation, in that relationship to that God, that He has saved me. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Which if you, we'll see in a minute, according to worldly standards, those are not high standards. You aren't even wise to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world. That's you and I. God chose the foolish ones to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see, if God is most wise, if He is the source of wisdom then he doesn't even have the option of saving men on the basis of their wisdom. There are none to pick from if that's the standard. When God called you and I, and even now into salvation, he uses us not because of your, our wisdom. Now why would he work that way? Why would he not pick the worldly wise? He goes on to say, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is why men worship and why they praise God when they begin to think of His wisdom. Because when we realize that God is most wise and we were unwise and are unwise and God has saved us anyway, it draws us to worship. So consider that. Like Nate prayed this morning, we, not only do we often think that we're more wise than other men, we revel often in thinking that we're more wise than God. And we're not. Even if you know a lot of facts about one particular subject, that's just some of the facts of one subject. That's nothing compared to the wisdom of God. So consider that. Dwell on that. Think of that. Allow that truth, these truths, to crush you into the fetal position as you worship God. We stand far too tall in our minds in the presence of God, far too broad-shouldered in His presence, and we should not. Consider these things. Not many of you were wise, you were fools, and God saved you. Secondly, we must learn to discern worldly wisdom from godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom from godly wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God. James says in James chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We have to understand that there is an earthly wisdom. 
And there is a heavenly wisdom. There is a, a worldly wisdom that's from here and a heavenly wisdom that is from above. And so when we go out into the world, there are things that are touted as wisdom. There are even practically wise things to do that are purely worldly, purely earthly. We don't rely on these things. That's not godly wisdom. As Christians, we have to be on guard against the so-called wisdom of the world and take hold of the wisdom of God. Paul says in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. That's worldly wisdom. It's philosophy, empty deceit, human traditions, elemental spirits, the things that everybody runs after and says, this is the new thing, this is the new thing, this is the new thing, here's how you're going to achieve, here's how you're going to rise up. All of those things, they come and go and come and go. And Paul says, watch out. Don't get captivated by that. That's not heavenly wisdom. That's earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom. When you realize this difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, you understand just as the world's wisdom is foolishness to us, God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. 1 Corinthians 1, again verses 18 to 25, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, here's the words of God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's God's wisdom. The world looks at it and says, that's foolishness. God says, I, what I'm doing is showing you how foolish you are in His wisdom, and especially the cross and the message of the cross and preaching the cross. You know how foolish to millions of people around the world, especially in America, you know how foolish it is that we're sitting in this room right now and you're all facing me and I'm facing you and you're all quiet and I'm talking and I'm reading from an ancient book and telling you what it says. Do you realize how foolish that is? And yet believers have been doing it. For centuries, for millennia, get together on the Lord's Day. Remember the resurrection. Worship God. Preach the Word. Preach Christ. Preach the crucified carpenter. The world says, this is foolish. As a matter of fact, the world would say, why don't you just, can't you just cancel one service? I mean, there's kind of a big game on tonight. Let's get together. We'll have a party. We'll, we'll fellowship. As it, we'll have a church party is what we'll do. That's worldly wisdom. There is no fellowship around a bowl of checks mix. Christians fellowship around the Word of God. That's worldly wisdom. God says, no, no, no. This is what's going to strengthen my people when they gather around the Word. 
So we have to study to know the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And recognize the world hates godly wisdom and God hates worldly wisdom. They're mutually exclusive. He's cool with it and he knows it. And then lastly, we close like I always try to do that with this point. We must look to Christ. Just a little hint. Proverbs chapter 8 is about Christ. Let me give you this quote from, from John Flavel. He says, The essential wisdom of God is, most, is His most exact and perfect knowledge of Himself and all His creatures and His ordering and disposing them in the most convenient manner to the glory of His own name. Now think about that. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of creatures, and bringing, making all of that reconciled to His glory. Now where is it that we see God taking into account His perfections, His holiness, all of the needs of creation in light of His holiness, bringing all things together in order to the sure achievement of the highest goal and the glory of His own name? Where do we see that? We see it at the cross. That's where that happened. We see that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, the end of verse 2, he refers to God's mystery. He says, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ. Everything I listed earlier, you'll find the treasures of that in the person and work of Christ. Every bit of it. That's why it's so important that we take the time to meditate upon the majesty and the glory of His person, His work, God's plan of redemption up until He came, the application of redemption after He came, His work in the heavens now, why the universe, why did any of this take place? It all centers around Christ. Only through Christ does any of it make sense. In Him are all of the treasures of wisdom. That's where we see the wisdom of God. Again, 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And in verse 30, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. It's been said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's where wisdom is. You want to grow in wisdom. It's not going to be just learning facts about the Bible. You want to grow in wisdom, look to Christ. Read the Scriptures through the lens of Christ. All of the treasures of wisdom are with, with that lens. You read Proverbs 8, you think of Christ. You read Proverbs 20, you think of Christ. Whatever it might be, that's where all the treasures will be found. Let's pray. Father, so much of what we do is folly. And very often, so much of what we call church is folly. So much of our words and talking and all the things that we come up with to try to satisfy our worldly hearts, it's just folly. Trifles wastes of time and breath. Lord, may we be a people who are devoted to Christ. 
and see that unless He is the centerpiece of all of our speech and all of our worship and all of our Monday through Saturdays and all of our work, that we're just exercising futility. God, help us to understand Your wisdom, to see it as glorious and majestic. Lord, Help us to shrink in our own eyes as we consider your wisdom, the little bit of knowledge we have. Father, I pray that with just, just the, the things I've said, as foolish as they have been, God, I pray that you would use them to strengthen your people, to encourage your people, to give us grace, to, to push us to Christ. And we will praise you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.